about uh, get dived a little deeper into kind of employment. Again, um, here are the folks that are involved um, in this uh, this course: Boston University, the Center of Mental Health Services Research and Policy, the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research, the Academy of Psych Rehab and Recovery, and Thresholds. Um, but there are no other disclosures that we need to make. Um, so. Today, just to set the context, we're gonna talk about employment um, and work um, and how that plays a role in the recovery of people with serious mental illnesses. And I'm also gonna talk about the interdependence of wellness with work and including sort of cognitive wellness as well as other types of wellness and how it all plays into helping people recover uh, from serious mental illness. We're also gonna talk the, about the importance of tracking employment experiences and outcomes and, and um, why we encourage people to do that, though it's usually one of those tasks that often falls off the list because people are just too busy. And then just talking about the, um, ending with talking about the importance of a lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion around work and employment for people with serious psychiatric illnesses. Okay, um, so these are the outcomes. We hope that you um, at the end of this um, session will have a stronger sense of the importance of employment. I think many of you are involved with that and know that, how work and wellness really are intertwined and you probably know that as well, even from your own personal experiences. And then this idea of using what's happening around work in your agency <clears throat> to support and improve programming, and then the lens of diversity, equity, inclusion to inform how we do our jobs uh, more effectively for people who are in recovery and how they can keep their jobs because that ends up being where people really struggle as you likely know. So we're gonna talk about work, wellness, recovery. We're gonna talk about supported employment, in particular the, um, the um, intervention of, of IPS, uh, that many of you may be using and then tracking employment outcomes. And we are gonna talk a little bit about the case discussion of Mario. So I wanted to start here um, and just ask uh, for people to unmute and talk to me a little bit about what are the challenges of the job that you have in general in terms of recovery? What does the intersection of work and recovery look like in your agency? Maybe it, there is no intersection. Let me know that. Um, and um, and what if you? What are your personal challenges if you are trying to help people find work? Okay, so you you have a lot to unpack with people. It sounds like right. They they're young. They have a they have a lot of like basic needs that need to be met first, right? Remember we talked last week about how when we if we can get people housed, then usually the other things follow. Um, and you know, and just knowing that your basic needs of a safe place to, to put your head down and, and food in your belly and people who are supporting you, then people can kind of take a deep breath and begin to explore what the options are for me. And if people, if you're working with people who have never worked, it's completely overwhelming, right? To think about how do I even begin this process? Um, you know, what is a resume? How do I how do I choose what I want to do um, and what that looks like? And 
and really also the the other piece that you mentioned too about folks um, who you know know that there are benefits that will that will support them at sort of a basic level and for people who've been so um, you know traumatized by sort of living on the edge or living beneath the edge um, that is an important safety net right and acknowledging all the feelings around that um, that that is a particular challenge uh, we work with a lot of people who have gone from being unhoused to housed and um, and now um, are exploring work as well and they want to find a way to find a balance right of i want to do a little work but i don't want to lose my benefits because what if something happens to me down the road right i don't want to start all over that's a huge challenge right there right and and you're really talking about uh relationship building after you know a, a wild couple of years of you know social and political and health issues all mixed in together um, where people, you know, have, have a lot of mistrust in people who are trying to help them. And I agree that, you know, the other day we had, a, I had someone in our services who, you know, we have to wear masks inside as well. Um, but if we are, um, if you're the only one in the room, you can take your mask down. And there was a, a, a young woman who we've been trying to help who's been living on the streets and she'd come in and she was sitting in the room by herself. And it was the first time in two years I've seen her without her mask off. Um, and it changed her, how I envisioned her in so many ways. And I dropped my mask. We were far enough apart just to say, I, I see you, you know? So, I mean, even the physical barrier um, is, is hard in relationship building. And you're so right. It's, it, the recovery relationships are about mutual, mutual, mutuality and trust. Um, and there's been so many things that have, have you know, um, dug away at that trust. So that's, that's premier is building that relationship and how to do that. A wonder, wonderful, wonderful comments about um, sort of the, the, the complicated layers of helping people choose, get, and keep work. And, and I love that idea and also of this sort of that, that the need for bringing in people who have worked to talk about what helped them and what hindered them in the process um, and, and giving people that kind of information too. It's not, it's not just, do you go to work or not go to work? It's how you go to work and do you disclose and <laughs> how do you disclose and the timing of disclosure um, you know, there's some people who have um, particular types of disclosures to make. It can actually help them in the job search. Like we work with veterans as well who have uh, serious mental illness. And in, in our social community in the Boston area, disclosing that you're a veteran, one, just that level of disclosure often will help you in the employment process. And then we do a lot of coaching of helping people disclose their, their mental health needs after they've been hired, and then they seek those reasonable accommodations. But thinking about all of those issues, right, is there, that, and that's where that lens of diversity, equity, inclusion comes in, is that there are a lot of issues um, that people live with um, that, you know, you have to help people make those kinds of decisions in, in an informed way. 
um, because we're working against societal values and um, pressures as well, right? Um, that, and how do I respond to those questions? And should those people even be asking? And what's the best response? So great comment. Okay, great. So making yourself really available to problem solve using your time together rather than kind of, you know, in a crisis, right? Is like, yeah. let's, let's, let's proactively talk about these issues here and now. I mean, really asking, I think it's great that you do this as an employment specialist is, you know, being very direct and honest about what are people's fears about work and going back to work because thou, those fears, usually there's some reality in them, right? Is we know that if you tell someone that you, you are living with some sort of mental illness or mental health challenge or you're neurodiverse is that people have biases about that and you can't predict how people are going to respond. And that's a scary place to be. So we, just even acknowledging that and offering support is a great strategy to start with because then you open up the lines of communication. So great, really great. So you have to acknowledge the negative realities here because there are negative realities. Like you said, COVID, mental illness, uh, addiction, criminal history, homelessness. Those are negative realities that people are living with. We can't poo-poo them at all. Um, but then we also, we have to find a way to hold out hope that's real and not Pollyannish, right? And that's, that's the work. That's the work that you do. So lots of challenges. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing. Um, it makes me appreciate you all even more. Um, so let me just tell you a little bit. Um, it, well, this will respond to some of the things that you guys uh, and, and men and women are experiencing in the work that you do. One, we know that people who have serious mental illnesses and addictions and criminal histories and are veterans and are neurodiverse, that they find work to be a form of, of personal medicine, right? It, because we talked about this last week, um, when, you, when you meet people in our society, they wanna know what you do when you're a grown up. What is it that you do, right? So having some sort of social role in one's community is really valued. Um, and so whether that's you are working in your, your faith community or you're working in a, a, a job or you, you're, you're going to school, people wanna have a valued role. They don't want to um, necessarily be in the system, right? It's not good for them. The problem though, is that here we are, um, that the employment rate of people with mental illness is substantially lower than the rate among the general population. And people who live with kind of serious mental illnesses and addictions, they're only be, their employment rate runs about 15%. And, and unfortunately, that's an employment rate that really hasn't changed much um, over time in the last 30, 40 years, despite all the, the good research and the interventions that we have. You know, we're dealing with some social issues that are barriers as well right, is that people may want to go to work, but they, they carry with them some past history that isn't well received in the employment world. Um, they're often, um, even despite laws, the Americans with Disabilities Act, right, that is a law that allows people with dis any kind of disability to have a level playing field. But you have to get the job, actually, before you can enact the law, and getting the job can be tough. We know that when people do work, 
it does have short-term effects on their mental health and self-esteem, right? So it, it improves their mental health and it can improve their self-esteem. There is a point in time where it can switch and that's where this wellness at work, staying well at work becomes really important. Once people have a job, um, their sort of emotional and stamina can be worn down, particularly if they have other things going on in their life. Um, and that's, we're going to talk a lot about that aspect of helping people keep the job and stay well. Uh, Lisa talked about this in the very first class. We know that when people work, it has a very positive impact on their physical health. So people live longer if they work, right? People have less diabetes and less heart disease and uh, less cardiovascular events when they work. And the people that we're working with have a lot of those health conditions because they're associated with disparities. So obviously income and, and access to healthcare play a big role and you get income and access to healthcare when you go to work. Um, so it's so complicated. Um, I, the, this came up that one of uh, people with psychiatric disabilities are one of the largest groups that participate in the SSDI and SSI programs. They represent almost 40% of all the beneficiaries when both primary and secondary impairments are considered. So what we run into a lot is that we have young adults, we work with a lot of young adults um, whose families don't want them to lose their benefits because their benefits really support, help support the family as well. Um, and so when we begin talking about work with a young adult, they can get a lot of pressure from their families not to participate. So what we're learning to do is to bring those family members in as part of the conversation um, so that they have the facts as well. Because there's a lot of myths out there about benefits, right? Is that if I, if I go to work, then I can never get it again. Um, I, if I you know, people, and, and obviously some people have had some negative experiences in SSI and SSDI and they don't want to give that up. Um, but it, they are one of the largest groups. And so that is a real safety net that we're working with. Um, we have a lot of people who are older who will talk about how basically sometimes they feel they're paid not to work, right? Because they might be able to get a job that is actually not going to be as much money as they got on their disability payments. So it's actually makes more financial sense for them to stay um, unemployed. Um, and so finding programs that help people um, tease through all of that, super important. Um, so the other thing that we heard from all of you is that people with, with, with psychiatric disabilities um, unlike their counterparts who have other disabilities, people with psych dis psychiatric disabilities talk about a lot of other types of employment barriers. You know, how do I disclose? When do I disclose? What do I say? How do I answer those questions? There is a lot of prejudice out there. People don't understand psychiatric illnesses. They only know what they know from the news. Um, and who knows what kind of news they're watching or from television and movies. So there's a lot of prejudice when people do disclose. People immediately jump to what do you think when they hear that someone has a mental illness who's, who's interviewing with them? What's the first thought you think people think about? First bias thought. 
All right. And, and what kind of liability? Exactly. Exactly. You're, you're hitting the nail on the head, right? That people um, are worried that people with, with, if they hire someone with a mental illness, that they could down the road do harm, right? And, and unfortunately, those incidents, when it has happened, have been so widely publicized and spread that it becomes, it becomes a, a label that goes towards all people with psychiatric illnesses, that they're somehow they're dangerous and they're dangerous when they get ill. Um, when in fact, we know that it's, it's actually just the opposite is that people with mental illnesses tend to be victimized more than any other group of people with disabilities. Um, and it's a very small percentage of people who get um, that aggressive and can do harm when they're not well, but it's been so put out there that that's what people worry about. And that's a, that's a hard barrier to overcome. And you can only overcome it with um, uh, um, building uh, relationships with people in the community, right? Who might hire folks for you um, and building relationships um, at, through education and, and, you know, myth busting around that. So those are, those are important challenges. Um, I wanna share um, this framework because I think it, it you know, what, we're, what we've really moved to in the field is this idea of work-based learning. Um, and it used to be back in the day, I don't know if anyone's been in the field long enough where we had what were called sheltered workshops. And people would be put in these workshops and do piecemeal work for a company, like a button company. They'd make, they'd be punching the holes in the buttons or they'd be packing the boxes. It was just, but it, and they called it sheltered because they got, um, they were given like, you know, a dollar a day. Um, they usually came to work with someone who kind of oversaw them. Um, the only people in the building who were working were people with really, you know, really disabled. Um, and there was no career tra trajectory. And there was no asking of the people whether or not they liked doing the work. It was just, this is where you're going to go to work. So it was this place and then train, I mean, um, yeah, sort of train and place model. And now we're, we are going into this work-based learning where, um, you know, if you've never worked before, how do you learn to work? How many of you learned how to work at your first job, right? We all did, right? You had to get up, you had to be there on time. You had to respond to criticism from your supervisor. You had to talk to people you didn't know who were your colleagues and maybe you hated your job, right? Maybe you hated that first job. So we know that that people who have serious mental illnesses can work, they wanna work and they can work in careers of their choice. And this is research that's pretty important because if we take the time to ask people what it is they want to do for work or help them figure it out, that conversation we know then connects to their ability to hang on to the job when it gets hard, right? So it, it's the same for us. You know, if we like our job and it's hard, we're willing to try and find a way to keep it. But if we hate our job, look what's happened during COVID, right? The great, the big quit they're calling it because so many people were unhappy at work and I'm not doing this anymore. I'm miserable. I'm not gonna put myself out there anymore. So this idea of learning on, on the job 
how to be a worker one and then how to be a worker in a, in a career that I like is super, super important for people with mental illnesses as well. So how many, can anyone tell me what you learned on your first job? What did you learn about yourself? Anything, tell me your first job and what you learned, right? So your first couple of jobs, you know, what I hear is how much you learned in those three jobs, one about yourself and one about the world of work and one about people in general, right? And right. important life lessons, uh, some of them not so fun, uh, where you end up feeling extremely disrespected or um, sometimes it can really, that kind of disrespect and anger at how we're treated. Like my first job was a waitress job and I would, I had the same experience. I couldn't believe how people spoke to me, you know, like somehow I was responsible for them not liking the meal that they ordered, you know, kind of thing. And just kind of blown away by that. And that, that experience made me realize like one, I'm, I never want to do this again. So I'm done. I'm done being a waitress. So that was, that's an informed decision based on an experience, right? And then you gather some of those first couple of work experience. You might have a lousy boss who treats you terribly um, and you learn how to either deal with them or not. Um, and, but that informs how you go into your next role. And if we think about the people that we're working with um, and if people have never had those experiences, Right. So, of course, they don't know what they want to do. They've lost out for a variety of reasons, whether it's been not having housing. Uh, the pandemic has been a big one um, and being incarcerated, having a mental illness. They've lost out on these first job opportunities where you learn how to choose. You learn how to get and you learn how to keep work. You learn the skills that are associated with choosing, getting and keeping. And if you're going to be helping people work, it can be a really helpful framework to kind of um, segment the, the employment process into choosing skills, getting skills, and keeping skills. Because people will feel overwhelmed. And one of you mentioned that, like they don't know how to do a resume, they don't know how to interview, they, you know, they don't know what they want. And then once they get there, what if they get sick? Those are all those chunks, choosing, getting, and keeping. And we often start with this framework. So we say to folks, we're just going to focus on the choosing right now. And then we'll help you with the getting. And then we'll help you with the keeping so that you don't have to feel overwhelmed at the process. Because when people feel overwhelmed with the process, they don't let you in your house. They don't show up for appointments. You know, they miss appointments. They ghost you, right? Because they feel overwhelmed. Um, and so chunking it into this framework can be super helpful. There is a really important um, intersection of work and wellness for folks who are um, living with, with serious mental illnesses and addictions. And, and when we talk about wellness, we, it's, it's more than just not, you know, than being ill, right? It's, um, it's we use the eight domains that SAMHSA um, has put forth uh, as a way of being inclusive around wellness um, and making sure we're tapping into what wellness means for all people, because wellness for me might mean, you know, emotional, social, and physical. And for someone else, it might mean spiritual, social, and environmental. 
Um, and so we use these eight domains of um, our eight dimensions of wellness and think about work and how that all intersects. Um, and we know that people with serious mental illnesses and addictions, if they are, if their wellness domains are shaky, right, that that can really interfere with them keeping a job, right? Um, so if you think about environmental, people don't have a house, but they have a job. You know, what happens, right? They don't have a place to shower, perhaps. Uh, they couldn't get, uh, they don't want to use the shelter system, um, but they have a job. Um, and then someone, uh, their supervisor starts noticing and commenting on their state of, of sort of physical presentation. That can be really difficult to keep their job. Or uh, someone may not have, um, someone may be able to get a job with the help of, of their rehab um, or employment specialists. Right, but they lack the money to take the bus system or they lack a, a, what we call in Boston, a transportation card. Um, so how do you get to work on time? Um, interviewing, I gotta have clean, nice clothes to interview, but I don't have them, you know? So I don't even have those, those um, the money to buy those clothes to do that. Um, being able to work in a, in, in, a, in a role that actually taps into something that I have a strength in Right. So many of the we talked last week about those jobs that we tend to find um, people get employed in the five F's, you know, food, flowers, fetching, filing. Um, I forget what the other one is, um, but they they tend to often put people right into a customer service role. Right. Working at the cash register, uh, high stress, dealing with rude people. And if they don't have the skills to do that, then they have a hard time keeping that job. The pace of the job is fast when you're dealing with customer service, right? Okay, so I wanna talk about um, the, the individual um, placement and support model of supported employment. Um, and there's some, some important data from this. It's been the most researched form of supported employment. It is, when we were last week, we talked about evidence-based practices. So IPS is considered the supported employment evidence-based practice that, um, you know, makes a difference. It's a very effective approach uh, for employment for all people with serious mental illnesses. It's been studied in all different minority communities to understand if perhaps people are differentially disadvantaged in their employment outcomes or in, in services. Um, and there's been found to be no difference. It's also very effective for people living with all types of dis, you know, real serious disorders like schizophrenia disorders, bipolar disorders, and substance use disorders. So IPA, IPS is a very direct, it's an individualized search for competitive employment um, that it, it avoids a lengthy pre-employment preparation or training. It's kind of like hands-on um, getting people ready for work. Um, it doesn't screen them out based on what we think their readiness for work is. So that's a subtle shift, right? Is that someone comes to you and says, I want a job and you look up and then you think, oh, no way are they ever gonna get hired. IPS says, no, that's not what we do. Um, and it also doesn't exclude people on the basis of whether 
whatever their diagnosis is, whatever their symptoms are at the moment, or whether or not they're using or sober or somewhere in between. It is what we call a place and train approach rather than train and place to vocational rehabilitation. Um, and I'm gonna talk about what actually it is, but it is, it is effective. Um, and as, as you're saying, you know, there are some people in your system who use it and some people who don't. Um, and often state, states will um, make an investment in getting all of their employment specialists trained in IPS. Um, and when they do, they see a change in their employment outcomes. Um, because it is a, an employment service that um, has been designed to really help people who have these multiple complicated um, barriers to employment, basically. You know, they have all the disparities, they have health issues, they have criminal justice histories, they they're neurodiverse, they have credential issues, right? We have a lot of folks, <laughs> as you mentioned, who are young, who've never had a job. So what do you put on a resume? You don't, you never had a job, but you're, you know, you're 28 and people are going to immediately know that something has happened um, for folks. Um, so this has been designed to address those issues. So here are the principles of IPS. The focus is on competitive employment. So it's helping people get a job with a fair wage. Um, and this, you know, this is hard. Um, because many of the jobs with fair wages have, um, as Cynthia said, you know, first-time jobs, they expect you to come in like fully ready to hit the ground running like you've been working forever, even in entry-level jobs. And we've noticed even entry-level jobs, they're like entry-level jobs are saying, oh, we want you to have one to three years experience. Like how, it's an entry-level job, you know? So that can be, um, that that word competitive employment, um, you know, you wonder if people are finding ways to sort of under, um, fly under the radar and make it really difficult for people who have any kind of challenges to apply for these types of jobs. Um, the, the job really in IPS is based on client choice. So what is it that they think that they wanna do? What is it that, that together you determine they actually have some strengths in. And, and we often help people, we start with asking people if they have a passion, because usually passion is related to people's aptitudes and abilities, right? So someone might be really, they might say, oh, I, I'm an artist, you know, I'm really, um, and so they, they have an eye for color and they're a good sketcher and they, they love, um, painting and sketching on their own, or they're always doodling, right? So that tells you something about that person, that they have some skills and aptitudes in that area. Um, and so paying attention to what it is they want and what they feel they're good at is really, really important. They're actually good self-reporters on that, right? They can tell you, this is what I, you know, and I know I don't want to work, you know, at the cash register. They may have had some negative experiences with that. So attending to that. The other uh, principle of IPS that's really important is it's supposed to be a rapid job search. I mean, and that's rapid meaning that it's a normal job search. Uh, it's time, limit, time unlimited and individualized support. So IPS promotes this idea that 
we go beyond the 90 days, that we get people, we build in natural supports, um, and that they, we do systematic job development, okay? So that um, we help people choose, then we help people get, then we help people keep. keep, keep. Um, and we also look at, in IPS, we pay attention to the integration of their mental health and employment services. So it used to be that um, you know, people were told not to work because it's too stressful. Now we are promoting, you know, employment is important to people's recovery. We're listening to people who say, I wanna go to work. But work does add demands on people and that can exacerbate mental health systems. So proactively talking about having, helping them communicate to a case manager or a nurse practitioner or a psychiatrist that they are considering going back to work um, and that that and helping them advocate for medication support or and or changes that will support their wellness at work is a conversation that needs to happen when you're helping people go back to work. Many people are given medications to help them sleep can make it really hard to wake up in the morning and go to work on time. And so having conversations about either reducing or taking those medications earlier. Those are the types of, of conversations that integrate mental health, treatment and employment. And we know from the research that when we, we unpack all of those issues for people that they can hold on to their jobs longer, right? The cognitive impairments of medications and the illness itself can make learning, um, as, as Cynthia said, learning on the job hard which is hard anyways, if you have no training. So thinking about those proactively, if you're helping people go to work, super important. And which is what we know works for folks with serious mental illness. Um, there's another um, evidence-based practice called thinking skills for work. Um, and the reason this develop, has developed is that we have learned that people have a hard time hanging on to their jobs because of their cognitive functioning right? It's that they forget, um, they make mistakes um, that might be, um, they can't pay attention when someone says, here are the five things I want you to do today, right? And they don't write the notes down. Um, learning and remembering new information at a fast pace, being able to uh, plan ahead, processing speed, all of those can be disrupted by a mental illness and a substance use problem, but they also can be disrupted by the very treatment that they're on, right? So the medications can really play um, havoc with people's cognitive functioning as well. So there's this whole science out there called cognitive remediation, where, you, you know, our brain is plastic. We know that it's neuroplastic. We can actually change how our brain works through tasks. And this is what cognitive remediation is. And its goal is to improve functioning at work or school or in a training program or in living in your home. Um, and it's called, it's a cognitive enhancement program. Um, the thinking skills for work where people um, who are looking to get work or who want to advance within their um, chosen area of work, they get involved in this thinking for um, skills for work. Um, and it's really about improving their thinking skills so that they can stay and keep their work jobs and improve. I'm going to tell you what it, what it looks like. Okay. 
So the way uh, thinking skills for work works is that um, it starts, it's a computer cognitive uh, program and people really like it because it's, it's basically like playing computer games. Um, and it assesses where they have cognitive strengths and where they have cognitive challenges in relationship to their work around these areas of reasoning, evaluating, problem solving, decision making, and analyzing. Um, and so it's, it's things like, okay, I have a customer standing in front of me who's upset about, you know, the fact that um, there's a problem with the bill. And can they problem solve in that moment? Can they make a decision to um, respond to the customer and say, I hear that you're angry and I'm going to go get my supervisor? Or can they not make that decision and they get into it with the customer, right? So these are the types of skills that we use all the time in working, um, our critical thinking skills. And thinking skills for work um, trains people to enhance these skills. So they are, it's they're, they're computer games that are actually kind of fun to play. I've actually tried out the computer program um, where you are, you know, you're driving a little car and there's a blinking light and you have to remember where the car went, you know, and that helps you um, develop, uh, increase your memory skills. Um, and then you come on one of the programs is, you know, a lot of it is like cars and, you know, uh, sort of gaming um, icons that people like, you know, should I go left or should I go right? And if I go right and there's the bad guy over there that's going to gobble me up, maybe I shouldn't go there. Um, and so these strategies that are built into these games improve people's cognitive functioning um, in the day-to-day -day situations at work. You know, it just sort of, it's like, I don't know what the right word is, but um, it's like juice for their brain, but it's, it's non-pharmaceutical. It's actually practicing the skills on a computer game. Um, and so if you have clients that you're working with who actually have a, a cell phone and who play games, um, those types of directing them towards um, any kind of learning games will help their cognitive functioning at work, even if you aren't using this exact evidence-based practice. Um, there's so much research, you know, like you, if you have kids and you're upset that they're always playing uh, computer games, some of them actually can be helpful in terms of, of memory and, and problem solving and thinking um, skills. Um, and so when we use this thinking skills for work, uh, we work um, with both the, someone like an employment specialist and they have their thinking skills person. And together we say, well, he's really struggling or she's really struggling with um, deciding what to do first, even though, um, you know, she, and she only has so many hours to get, um, like we see this all the time for people who um, work in entry-level jobs in the healthcare system, right? They help, they are often asked to help put in the medical notes but they don't do them fast enough or they don't prioritize the ones that were done in the morning. Um, and so when the healthcare providers come back in the afternoon, they're working on the ones that just happened rather than the ones in the morning. So prioritizing is a skill that can be really enhanced through thinking skills. And these, these skills help people keep their jobs. Another um, 
a way of thinking about helping people go back to work is around wellness and using um, a curriculum called Vocational Illness Management and Recovery, V-I-M-R. And it's an adaptation of illness management and recovery. Is anyone using illness management and recovery in your, in your agencies? No? Okay. So this is a, a, a curriculum that is an individualized curriculum that actually um, provides people with information about their mental health condition and their substance use condition. It, it provides lesson plans for whomever is working with the person around coping strategies. And this particular adaptation is all about work. And it focuses again on the keeping skills of work on the days past the 90 days. Um, and it, it teaches people about what are the normal challenges at work and how when you get a symptom, you know, and if you get symptoms and and the challenges that might bring up, it, 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 it coaches people on strategies they can use in the workplace. Um, it coaches people on how to cope with stress at work. It teaches people how to build social relationships at work, right? So if you think about folks that are going back to work and someone says, well, you know, how come you're in this entry level job, you look like you're 30, you know, and it's kind of the water cooler conversation if we think pre pandemic. Um, and how do I respond to that in a way that actually helps me build a relationship that's positive? You know, some people disclose too much and they, and they disclose everything about them and that can build a barrier. Um, but some people say nothing, and that can also build a barrier. So there's a, a big part of this curriculum, and these curriculums are free um, on the SAMHSA website. Um, and you can certainly email me if you are interested in any of them. I can, I can send you a link for them um, where they give you uh, content that you can use with people that you're trying to help um, keep their jobs once they have them. And then a big part is about preventing relapse and performing your best at work. Um, again, going back to work can have a really positive impact on people's mental health, but it can also erode people's mental health if it's a stressful job they don't like, if it requires a huge demand on them emotionally that they and that leaves them nothing at the end of the day. Um, and so we want to talk about preventing relapse with folks, you know, how to stay in that spot of, of managing a, a lifelong condition um, that requires attention and care, but also going to work and being in relationships and being in a home and um, having children or going back to school. Um, relapse is something that comes with mental health conditions and substance use. Right? It's, it's a negative reality, but we can help people minimize it and eliminate it by actually talking about it preventively and proactively. So this curriculum is one that does that. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about tracking employment experiences and outcomes. Um, and you know why do we do this? And, and some people do it and some people don't. Um, and the reason we do it really is that it's supposed to be about program improvement right, um, is being able to say to people who fund you, we got 40% of our folks are working, 
and 32% of our folks have been working for 90 days. Um, but it also allows you to dig deeper and say, well, if we only have 10% of our people working, why is it only 10%? It allows you to kind of problem solve and maybe improve, get training for employment specialists or get more resources for folks that they don't have. So tracking employment outcomes and, and experiences of folks is super important in terms of um, improving how we actually help people. Um, again, too, it's, it is about measuring implementation. It's not just about the outcomes, but it's about process improvement. Um, finding out, um, you know, are we delivering employment services in a way that the research has shown will result in desired outcomes? You know, so even if you're not using IPS, are we um, teaching people the choosing skills? Are we teaching people getting skills? Are we teaching people keeping skills? Um, are, we, are we doing that? Or are we just getting them a job and saying, good luck, it's been nice to know you, right? Um, if we're being, um, by looking at our process, we can, we can see if there's a match between what the research says and what we're doing. And adhering to that is called fidelity. You may hear that, fidelity to the model. And we do know that programs that adhere closely to the IPS model that I described of, you know, helping people get a job based on their preferences and their values and their skills and doing it, uh, providing them support and talking about their mental health. We know that programs that do that um, are more effective than programs that do not, right? So, um, it does allow us to pay attention to when we look at both. My, my boss used to say, it's like opening up the black box, the Pandora box, right? So what often happens in employment programs is we say, um, state VRs will look at the data and say, oh, 15 or 20% of people are working. Well, that's because they don't wanna get off their benefits and that's because they don't want to work. We blame the people, right? We don't, we don't look at the process. When in fact, yes, those things might be true for some people, but if we open up that box and we look at what is it that the employment specialists are doing, if we look at what are the employment specialists given in terms of resources to actually help, um, we might find out that they need more, they need more employment specialists, they need more money. Um, so they need higher salaries, uh, they need more curriculums to use, right? And if we add those things into our budget, we're gonna have better outcomes. Um, things that, that we want programs to collect that SAMHSA encourages, and it sounds like, you know, how many people are working? What are their hours that they work? What kind of money are they making? Um, the other things that can be really helpful for employment programs for the folks that we work with is, are people experiencing health issues and symptoms, um, mental health and physical health? You know, how do they feel about working? Are they satisfied with the financial um, picture that they have now that they're working? Um, I'm curious for folks who are helping people go back to work, are people working part-time or full-time for the most part that you're finding? We're seeing the same things over here, right? Is that people are interested in part-time work 
It is a way to gain experience, but they also begin to realize through that experience, I'd like to go to trade school. I mean, going into the trades right now is a great idea, right? It's a, uh, it's a, they have huge needs and people can and make a decent, decent living in the trades, a very decent living, but they need time to do that. They also, people choose part-time because it allows them to keep their benefits, which is the safety net, make a little cash and also take care of their health. So for many people, it's finding that balance um, really important. So taking a look, or even if you don't measure, listening for these outcomes, because that can help you deliver better programming as well, asking these questions. So I'm going to stop there with content, and I, I'd love to hear from folks about um, if anyone had a chance to take a look at the, uh, uh, the case of Mario and what you think are some of the critical issues for him. On, and if not, even if in, in the work that you do around helping people keep the job and some of the things that came up early around diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, what are some of the um, things that you, you think need to be done or you're doing to tackle some of those challenges or would do with Mario if you're not actually helping people get work? So here's, here's kind of a little piece of clinical wisdom is that usually in everyone's delusions is a tiny piece of reality, right? So um, that, that, that delusional thought and idea about what they want to do, right? That says, I want to be an astrophysicist, or I want to be a psychiatrist, or I want to be a, a defense attorney for the, or sit on the Supreme Court, or I want to be president of the United States, whatever it is, this lofty idea that, you know, is really not uh, something that people are gonna be able to achieve given where they are, um, is to really focus in on what they're talking, you know, the interest area or some aspect of that role that, and, and asking those sort of curious questions about, well, what is it about that that appeals to you? You know, and then usually you can find what it is that's sort of driving that, that, that idea. Um, and then being able to talk about work that might also provide some of that, you know, like I, for some people, um, you know, I want to, I want to be, um, I want to play in Carnegie Hall. I'm, I'm a really good singer. And I, that's my goal. I want to, I want to, I want to be a world-class singer in Carnegie Hall. Well, you really love music. Yes, I do. I really love music you know, and then maybe helping people find work in an environment where music is valued, you know, working in a music store or, um, you know, working uh, backstage and handing out uh, the, the programs for a concert, um, starting off as a volunteer and something like that. Following the trail of the delusion, we call it, is, can be really helpful um, and keep people engaged. But it's it's a it's a big it's a big challenge, right? Because they may they may be way out there at all times. Um, so really trying to to follow that and figure out what it is that gives them that kind of interest. Um, so it looks like some of you didn't get a chance to. Oh, here I noticed the emotional regulation piece for clients can be difficult. Yes, very difficult for people, um, particularly in in keeping their jobs. Um, and that's where that the vocational illness management recovery curriculum can be really helpful. Even if you're someone who is coaching and you want to take a look at content around 
helping people learn how to regulate when they feel dysregulated, things they can do, some key little uh, in the moment strategies. If you if that's something you don't have any information about, that can be really helpful. But <clears throat> knowing, having those kind of proactive conversations, it's like relapse prevention that we all have um, that person or that tone of voice or the, uh, the context that can kind of, you know, go up our neck and right up through our hairline and make us really angry and upset and feel hurt um, and mistrustful and defensive. We all have one. Having those conversations with your folks that you are working with around their jobs and what causes that feeling for them at work and then problem solving before it happens with them is really a key strategy for helping people keep their jobs, right? We know there are a lot of lousy supervisors out there and often supervision or feedback um, is given in a way that can feel very personalized and hurtful um, and helping people problem solve around that. How are they gonna take that feedback um, and sort of separate themselves from the performance so it doesn't hurt them and then cause them to dysregulate can be a really helpful skill for folks. You know, we once had someone who um, almost lost her job because she had a uh, boss who would, she was in a little cubby and the boss would run by all the time um, on the way to the ladies room and uh, was in a hurry uh, to get to the ladies room and get back and never said hello to the person in the cubby. And so the person in the cubby then jumped to the conclusion that she, that the boss hated her. And so what she did was basically stopped working and spent her whole time for two weeks or so in the cubby. Why does she hate me um, not doing her job? And then of course that became noticed that she wasn't doing her job. And when we got to the bottom of it and we actually, um, coached her and her supervisor to kind of check out whether or not that was true. It was that the boss was in such a rush to get to the bathroom and get back to their, their office that they weren't, they just weren't paying attention to anyone, not just this person, but that completely unraveled that person who was trying to keep that job. Um, and so, you know, that kind of problem solving around those moments where people um, feel socially excluded. Um, I know they don't like me. I don't have anyone to eat with. They're looking at me funny. Um, helping people problem solve around those issues can go a long way in helping people keep their jobs as well. You know, checking out the evidence for the reality of the situation. All right. So I'm the only homework I'm, I'm going to give is to, well, two things. Um, is to wish you all um, a, a lovely Thanksgiving recess. I hope you get the day off and, um, and grateful for all that you do to help people. And then if you, um, I ask you to give a read of the Mario case study, because we will talk, continue to talk about it um, and really appreciate your time and attention today and your contributions. It meant a lot to me, so thank you.